Good afternoon. For those of you who are far away, if you come closer, I promise not to bite. I'm Mary Oliver. I flew in yesterday afternoon from, from Baltimore, just before uh, it disappeared. You heard about the flood? Yeah. I, it was just shocking to see all that water running through Baltimore. But um, the last movement will be rapid ones. So um, be sure you're doing well. I'm trying to decide whether to go up there or to stay here. If you, if you come closer where I can see you, I don't need to go up there. My preference is to be closer to you. Elaine is supposed to be with me. Uh, she isn't today. Uh, we just got back from Kenya last week. We had done um, a family evangelism series there in Kisumu, Kenya, for those of you who have been to Kenya. It's western Kenya, right on the banks of Lake Victoria. And um, we've done five one-week family evangelism series in the last eight weeks. Um, we will never do that again. We did one in uh, Honolulu, Hawaii, the last week of March. We did two, two weeks after, a week after that, we did one in southern Serbia in the city of Nish, where Constantine the Great was born. That's the guy who changed Sabbath to Sunday. And then we had one in northern Serbia, in Novi Sad, for those of you who've been to Serbia. And we had a week in Budapest. Um, and then there was a week in between where we came back for some meetings at the GC and then went to Kenya and just got back from Kenya. The neat thing about Kenya was that it was being televised by Hope Channel Kenya and it was also on Facebook Live and it was also on YouTube. So uh, we did have a baptism a week ago Sabbath and I just got a report this past week from our Director of Evangelism and Communication for the West Kenya Union. And uh, the report is that from all the sites, there were 446 baptisms. So, um, wow, that's amazing. And God is amazing. So we thank God for that. But because of that, Elaine is kind of um, under the weather. She uh, had a temperature over the weekend, and uh, since we were flying here yesterday, she was not feeling well on Saturday night, and we decided that she should take at least a couple of nights in her own bed so she can recoup, and she switched her flight to tomorrow morning. So if you're back tomorrow afternoon, she'll be here with me, and uh, you'll get twice the workshop you'll get today. Um, it's, it's so much better when Elaine is presenting with me because then we have the bookends. I'm almost thinking that I should go up there so I can see you all better. My preference is, is to not go so far up, but I can see you better. Is that good? Are you okay? Good. Um, this afternoon, oh, let me tell you about what we're going to be doing. We have four workshops with you um, today through Thursday. Um, we're speaking in New York City on Sabbath, so we have to get out of here a little earlier, so we're not going to be here on, on Friday afternoon. But we'll give you enough so that you can have as if we were here on Friday afternoon. Um, we'll usually present for about an hour, 
it's 75 minutes for, for this workshop. We'll go for about an hour and then give you the last 15 minutes for Q&A. And uh, let me begin by praying. Let's pray. I think, I think Eric prayed before, but I like to pray. I like to feel connected to God since uh, family is so important. And we know that it's God's plan. So if it's God's plan, let's ask him to help us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for a new day, and thank you for blessing us today with life and the opportunity to listen to more of your plan for our families. We invite you into this room and into our hearts. And even now, we pray in a special way for Elaine, that her body will be healed and she'll be stronger, and that she'll be here with us tomorrow and be able to share. In a special way, we pray for everyone who has a special request where family is concerned. And we know that we can trust you because you keep your promises in Jesus' name. Amen. This afternoon, we're going to, um, I'll speak with you on a topic, putting first things first, which is a spinoff of um, one of the seven habits of uh, Dr. Covey's uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Seven Habits of Highly Effective Families. A number of years ago, maybe 12 or 13, maybe 14, Elaine and I were trained by Dr. John Covey, that's Dr. Stephen Covey's brother. He and his wife Jane ran the family section of, uh, of, of that Franklin Covey um, unit, and so it was our privilege to get trained from them. Uh, but the whole notion of the seven habits is a very spiritual one, and even though Dr. Covey uh, did it as his uh, doctoral dissertation, um, and then it became a bestseller and, and something that has been used worldwide in industry, uh, it really is a spiritual base. And, um, and we have uh, permission uh, as we got trained to uh, integrate scripture and spirit of prophecy because uh, the principles are really um, biblical principles. So, putting first things first. Um, we'd like to begin by introducing our family. Let's see. I don't know how well you're going to see them. Yeah. Well, you see them a little bit. Some of the color is a little washed out, but hey, that's okay. Some of you will see that and uh, raise a couple of thousand bucks so that we can get a new projector in this building and then you can see the real colors. <laughs> anyway, this is our family. Elaine and I have been married for 33 years. We got married when we were five. <laughs> um, and we have two children. Our daughter Jessica is our older child and our son Julian. Jessica is... Um, She's actually a graduate of Andrews University and Loma Linda University. She's a public health educator, and uh, she currently works at the General Conference in, in the Youth Department. Jessica's getting married in September, and um, she's happy about that, and so are we. <laughs> Julian is our second and last born, and Julian is a civil and environmental engineer, and um, he's single and um, works as a civil engineer in, in the Washington, D.C. area. Worked for ADRA a year after grad school, and, and um, he works in Washington, D.C. now. Now, when we travel to places like Africa and India, where we talk about cows and, and stuff like that for dowry, 
you know, we could say, well, Julia is not married yet, and um, maybe we can make some arrangements, and, and we can say the same thing here, even though we don't need cows or anything else like that. But um, just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about cows and, and stuff like that, and it gets, uh, it gets fun. I wish we had time to speak about dowry and, 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 and what it really means. And, and, and in the West, we don't understand th those issues, but it's a lot neater than we think. And it's not buying a spouse. You know, so many times we, we get incensed in the West and we think that it, it means that women are a property. They're not. It's basically making sure that whoever's marrying your daughter has the means to take care of her. <laughs> you know? And they're saying, I can take care of a family. And, and this is um, good faith for, for saying that and for doing that. So for those of you who were raised in Africa and have had experience with the continent, you, you have a better understanding of the fact that you're not buying a wife. You don't own her. And, and we talked about that uh, two weeks ago when we were in Kenya. Um, the ABC uh, has two of our books. And um, they, t they tell me it's available. I wish you could see some of uh, the real color. That's supposed to be red. Real family taught answers to questions about love, marriage, and sex. So for those of you who are interested in getting this book, it has um, a lot of information. And some of what we're going to be talking about this week, you can find in that book. There's also um, Hope for Today's Families. And Hope for Today's Families was just published um, last month. In fact, I was unveiled at the General Conference's spring meeting. It's the um, missionary book of the year, next year. And since you're here at this Family Ministries presentation, you need to know that 2019 is the centennial of Family Ministries in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It was in 1919 that the General Conference Committee voted into existence, the Home Commission, and Arthur Spaulding and his wife Maude became the first directors of Family Ministries of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're going to be celebrating 100 years next year, and so um, the publishing department of the General Conference, that um, who are the, the ones who uh, commission uh, the World Missionary Book of the Year, asked us to write, and again, many of the concepts that you'll hear this week if you want them reinforced, uh, you can find in that little book. And it's available at your book center here on campus. I think I'm, we're going to stop by after Elaine comes and maybe sign some books over there. That's the information I got from the camp meeting staff and those who are the coordinators of this. But we just wanted you to be aware of that. Uh, so let's begin this way. We're talking about principle-centered living. Ellen G. White in the book Education, page 57, and you know it well. Let's read it together. The greatest want of the world is the want of men and women. Men and women who will not be bought or sold. Men and women who in their inmost souls are true and honest. Read with me. Men and women who do not fear to call sin by its right name. Men and women whose conscience is as true to duty as a needle to the pole. Men and women who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. A powerful statement. A lot of truth. An amazing proposition. And is what God needs us to have as we negotiate family. 
Uh, family is important. It is what we know. When we have strong marriages, we're more likely to have strong families. When we have strong families, we're more likely to have a strong church that can preach the gospel with power and joy and help hasten the coming of Jesus Christ. The Seventh-day Adventist Church exists for no other reason than to call men and women, boys and girls, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that becomes more that, that becomes more easily operationalized when we have strong relationships, when we're getting along, when we're not yelling at each other or hitting or cursing or other ugly things that happen in our family relationships. And we're talking about that today. This is what God is asking for. My goodness, I haven't seen David White in a, in a long, long time. How are you doing, Dr. White? It's good to see you. <laughs> anyway, so this is how we frame our discussion this afternoon on this uh, quotation from Ellen White. And, of course, the brackets, women, um, you know, they, women were not included so much in, in writing those days. If Ellen White were here today, she would have said men and women. So we want women to know that they're included as well. Um, we're talking about principles and we're talking about values. When we look at principles, principles are universal laws or fundamental truths which exist independently of our knowledge or acceptance of them. Principles. They are like um, universal principles. For example, um, let me think of one. What's a universal principle? Something like gravity, right? Like gravity. And gravity exists whether or not you believe it exists. When I think about that concept, I think about raising our children and remembering um, driving them to school when they were probably in middle school or even in the academy. And we will start talking about something, and they will say, is that real? They will say, yeah, yeah, it's real. They'll say, are you sure that's real? They will say, yeah, yeah, it's real. And we would say to our kids, you know, even if you don't believe it's real, it is real, whether you know it or not. And there are lots of concepts you don't know about yet, and they're real. And when you find out, you will know they're real. Uh, it reminds me of the guy who said he did not believe in gravity and went up to the 10th floor of a building and, and, and tried to prove that it didn't exist. And, um, well, you know what happened. It's a bad story. Um, so... In Serbia, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, uh, as we were speaking there, there was a university student who had come with another university student who was an Adventist. A young woman had brought her friend. I think he was very interested in her. And um, he listened to me speak, and he said at the end, as we were having a conversation, he says, you know, I'm an atheist. I, I don't believe in God. And I said, and, and before I could say anything, he says, uh, I hope that doesn't make me a bad person. And I said, absolutely not. I said, um, it has nothing to do with your being a bad person. I said, um, so I said, you know, I'm a trained sociologist, and I have people I went to school with who are my friends who are atheists. And they're really neat people. You know, they're nice people, and they're kind people. And they do all kinds of nice things. And um, believing in God is an experience, and uh, you just haven't gotten there yet. 
you know, I mean, I said, God is a lot like gravity, I said to him. I said, you know, we're all evidence-based. And he says, yes, I'm all about the evidence in this. And he spoke English quite well, even though we were in, in Nice, Serbia. And um, we had a good conversation, and um, he felt better about being in church. So we church folk, we need to be able to make people feel good about being among us. And the fact that they don't believe in God doesn't make them a bad person. They just haven't encountered him yet. And I, I said to him, you know, it's like uh, the young man who went off to university, and he came back home, and he said to his mom, you know, I don't believe in, in, in this God of yours. And, and she's, he said to her, well, where, where is he? And, and I don't see him, you know. I, I'm all about evidence. And his mother said, well, you know, um, I have an experience with God, and that's why I believe that he is. And he speaks with, with me every day, and I speak with him. And we get along, and um, when I'm not feeling so well, I can go to him, and, um, and, and things get better. And, um, and then she, he says, yeah, but I, I don't see him. And she says, well, you have to experience him. Maybe I need to get the other um, microphone. There's some kind of interference with this one. And so um, that evening, her son had a toothache. And he was uh, in pain and he called out to his mother and said to her, Mom, you know, my tooth is hurting. And she says, uh, really? Show it to me. And uh, he said, quit fooling around, Mom. You know, it's a pain, and I can't show it to you, but I can feel it. And she said, well, that's how God exists. You may not be able to see him, but I can feel him in my heart every day. I talk with him, and he talks with me, and it's an experience. So, principles, they're there whether you believe they are or not. And values are the worth or priority we place on people, things, and principles. What is important to us constitutes our values. So you need to ask yourself today, what is your value? What are your values? And I think for many of you, family would be values that are high on your priority list. That's why you're here today, because you're interested in learning more about this whole notion of family. Here's what Paul the Apostle said in 1 Timothy 5.8. Read it with me. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than a non-believer. This is Paul writing to Timothy, and in a time when um, individuals were um, thinking highly of family, people who didn't believe in God, people who were pagans, and Paul is saying to Timothy, um, you know, we who believe in God, we need to t take care of our families. And if we don't take care of our families, if we don't provide for them, if we don't hold them in high esteem, if they're not a high value, we are worse than unbelievers. And we've lost the faith. So, if unbelievers 
who don't understand about God, who created family, hold the family up as a high value, how much more, those of us who believe in God and who know that family is God's idea. In fact, on the sixth day when he created humans, Adam and Eve, uh, and he established marriage, it became the first institution established by God at creation, marriage, family. First institution established by God at creation. Which one was the second one? The Sabbath, the following day. And ever since the beginning of time, Satan has tried to destroy the family and the Sabbath. And I was just in Nice, Serbia, four weeks ago, in the city where Constantine the Great was born, the guy who changed the Sabbath to Sunday. So here's one of the biggest issues when it comes to family, and that's why we're talking about putting first things first. Putting first things first. If you learn her here, and she's a lot more didactic than I am, <laughs> she would ask the question. So I am kind of channeling Elaine here right now. She would ask the question, what is your most important value? Or what are the top three values that you have that are dearest to you? Let's, let's begin with number one. What would be the highest value that we have? God. Did I hear something else other than God? I heard God. Do we agree, God? Number one? Okay, relationship with God. Okay. Not just God, but relationship with God. Okay. All right. Excellent. What would be number two? Family, rumblings. Do you agree with her? Family? Your other half. Marriage, okay? But usually we say marriage and family. In fact, if you look at the 28 fundamental beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, they're in one. Marriage and family is in the same belief, fundamental belief. And what would be number three? What? Okay, ministry. What, what is that? Yes, but what is that? Work, right? Work. So, God. Go ahead. Sometimes. Sometimes it's work. Sometimes it isn't. The pastor is a philosopher. Very good, very good. But let's go. God, number one. Number two. Family. Number three. Work. Let's take a look. Balancing work and family. Let's take a look. On this side, we have work, and employment is always changing. Right, Pastor? You haven't always done what you do now. Are you pastoring? No. You're retired? You're a retired physician. Oh, you're not a pastor. You're a physician, but you're a physician pastor. Late pastor. Okay. Retired. So, for those of you who are pastors, or for most of us, uh, did you have the same job all of your career? Since you were six years old. Okay. You're a physician at six years of age. What you were going to be, you were then becoming. Gotcha. So work, employment is always changing. I'm a pastor. Well, I'm a trained pastor. Haven't pastored in many years, even though I still pastor. 
believe it or not, even though I, I do um, direct of family ministries at General Conference, I'm also a volunteer pastor for family ministries at my local church in Washington, D.C. I'm not a very good member. I'm not there very often, but, you know, <laughs> when I'm there, I help organize stuff, and when I'm not there, we try to do stuff as well. So, work is always changing. The demand to do more with less. Is that how it is here in North Carolina? Yeah? To do more with less? Always. Do more with less? Um, the boss. Who's the boss? The external expectations, the measurable accountability, right? If you're a successful professional or successful at any job that you do, it's because someone, you're meeting some expectation. Somebody's always watching. Somebody's always measuring. You know, what have you done for me lately? I'm from New York City, and we used to have a mayor called Ed Koch. If there's anybody from New York and can go back, I don't know, 30 years, and remember Ed Koch. Um, interesting guy. Did a lot of good stuff for New York, but very interesting. And he, he would always be saying, what have you done for me lately? Uh, as a politician, he felt that that's what New Yorkers were always asking. So he was always trying to live up to the expectation of, of the citizenry of, of New York City. But the boss, external expectations, and measurable accountability, and then the company, the group, heavy expectations, measurable performance, and more and more, and if you're in ministry, more and more, it's become the norm. It used to be that pastors used to get away with it, um, and and people would complain, ah, pastors don't get evaluated and stuff like that. Well, we're way past that now. We've been doing evaluations of pastors for several decades now. But that is true of any work that you do. Let's look on the family side. The family. Relationships are permanent. Right? Relationships are permanent, or ostensibly should be permanent. So death do this part. We're talking about being married. Um, I've been married for 33 years. It's going to be 34 years in August. How many years, David and Lynn? 50 and three quarters. 50 and three quarters. Wow. Wow. Elaine was uh, traveling once to meet me. We were speaking someplace, and she stopped in Pittsburgh, and she went and got her nails done, you know, while, while she was waiting, because she have to do that when she got where she was going, so she had a little time between flights and she was getting her nails done. And the young woman who was taking care of her, um, she said, um, where are you going? And she says, I'm going to meet my husband. We're presenting on family. I said, ah, wow. So how long have you been married? At that time, she'd been married for 20 years. And then I said, 20 years? And the young woman said to her, 20 years? That's a long time. She said, my parents got divorced when I was three. And she says, how do you stay married for 20 years? And Elaine thought about it a little bit, and she said, um, expecting to be married for 50 years. So I, I like the fact that, that you've been married for 50 years. And once you get to 50, you start thinking 75, something like that, you know? I mean, keep living. Adventists, you know, they, they live good, you know? They eat well, and they don't do crazy stuff, and they don't do drugs, and you live long. You know, so um, anyway, so family relationships are permanent. And uh, sometimes, I, I don't always like what my wife says to me, and she probably doesn't always like what I say to her. And now that our kids are, are both grown and um, gone to school and graduated, um, you know, when we're having conversation, dinner, you know, it's, it's 
This is what happens when people have gone to school and know too much stuff. Everybody has big opinions, you know, and it's hard to have a conversation sometimes. I'm, I'm just being silly. You know, people are opinionated. Um, and, and like, no, I, I don't agree. I remember when my kids started telling me they didn't agree with me. And um, I think they did that more when they were 15 than now. You know, and I, I'm still waiting, you know, for them to get to 40 so that uh, they can agree some more with me. But anyway, they're still my kids, you know. Uh, sometimes I don't like what they do. You know, uh, your children are your children, you know. They didn't ask to come. You brought them into the world. And they sometimes behave the way they do because they have your genes. <laughs> and it kind of reminds you of what you want to remember. Just like, where this kid come out this way? And uh, if you're honest with yourself, you realize, wow, man, he's a lot like me. Ah, it's reminding me, hey, David? Anyway, so relationships are permanent when it comes to family. The demands, we're always running on empty in the family. Always running on empty. There's always something else to do. The boss, your internal expectations and self-accountability. You know, I want to have a great marriage. You know, nobody gets married to have a good fight. Anybody got married to have a good fight? I love to argue, so I'm going to marry someone I can argue with. Anybody? Any takers? No, most times people get married because they say they're in love. And sometimes they say they fall in love. And I say to people, be careful. Don't fall in love because you might get hurt. You know, if you fall, you get hurt. I, I say to young adults, walk into love. You know, go slowly. You know, find out stuff before you make this permanent decision. Then, of course, the group, marriage, family, child raising responsibilities often appear postponable. I have a favorite story when it comes to this. My kids were two and five. We were in New York City. I was youth director and family ministries director of the Greater New York Conference. And um, I was in my office, and we were working on so many projects, and I'd been going, you know, with so much stuff. And then I looked at Tina, my Italian secretary at the time. And I think at that time we still called them secretary. It's a long time ago. We don't call them that anymore. Administrative assistants. I like that one much better. Um, and, and, and I said, uh, Tina, you know, I've been going nonstop for several weeks, and my kids are two and five, and I'm going to snap twice, and they're going to be 22 and 25. I said, I'm leaving. And um, when we say sometimes about working, and uh, are you always working? Sometimes, and you say sometimes it's not work. Well, sometimes in ministry, we don't work 40 hours a week. We work 80 hours a week and way more. So, um, and we're always working. So anyway, I remember specifically going home, leaving the office. It was 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'd been there since 7 in the morning. And I said, Tina, I'm going to run home and get my kids because um, they're going to be grown, and um, I'm not going to spend any time with them. I had pictures of that day. I took them to Central Park in New York City, and we have pictures. And every once in a while, now, now that there's Facebook, you know, Father's Day and stuff, I see the pictures up here and what have you. But it was a wonderful, wonderful moment, wonderful day, and I still remember it. And for those of you with small children, run home sometime. Take the day off. Take a half day off. Do something. God, those kids are going to be growing up so fast before you know it, they're going to be gone. And if you don't spend any time with them when they're little, when they're grown, they don't have any time to spend with you because there's no habit. <laughs> there's no relationship that developed over that time. So here's what happens, and this is the big balancing act. And uh, if there are any pastors in the room, invariably, uh, this becomes a very tough 
situation, in some places of the world, even tougher than other places of the world, where pastors feel compelled to do 24-7, and they're always going, and always going, and always going, and always going, and there's this big issue with... Um, with balancing work and family, but not only pastors, physicians and teachers and everyone else, farmers, and unless your kids are working with you on the farm, you probably are working hard and doing stuff, and you always need to be balancing work and family, and because of this, there's no peace, there's a lot of pressure, and there's a lot of stress. And family becomes stressful. And people leave because it becomes so stressful. They get to breaking point and they can't handle it anymore. And what we're trying to deal with today is think about putting first things first. Think about our principles. Think about our values. And how do we do what's most important to us first instead of leaving it last? Let's do a little bit more. Well, this is a basic change model, and it's, um, it's from social science, and uh, it goes like this. We call it the basic change model, and we can call it also the see-do-get model. We are going to have to see things differently, to do things differently, to get a different result. Okay? If we don't change or we don't shift the paradigm of uh, the priori priorities of our family and recognizing how important family is and it's not postponable and the kids are just growing and if you're not there, before you know it, they're grown and they're gone and you don't even know them. Um, you're going to have to see things differently. Remember what God says, you need to provide for your family, and if you don't, you're worse than an unbeliever, and you've denied the faith. You have to see things differently, to do things differently, to get a different result. It's a basic change model. Shifting the paradigm of how we prioritize when it comes to family, of how we don't get so busy uh, doing whatever it is we do that we forget what's most important. What's most important. As I speak today, I speak as uh, the son of a pastor. My dad is a pastor. He's dead now. Both my parents are dead now. My mother just died about three months ago. And um, I still miss them. But I'm here today because they put first things first. I'm here today because they were so busy trying to save the world that they lost their children. That's why I'm here today. And I'm grateful for that. And it's been a model to me in my own marriage and in my own ministry how I prioritize my family, how I put things first things first, how I am more interested in just going someplace else and doing something else and speaking someplace else and trying to save the world and losing my own kids and losing my own family. And that's a challenge that we have many times in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So I want you to take a look at this cartoon, and it's a family meeting, and the father is at the head of the table, and then the mother and the four kids, and the father is speaking, and he said, he says, I've called a family together to announce that because of inflation, I'm going to have to let two of you go. Okay. Well, the question is, is this a good family model? Would you say it's a good family model? What kind of model is this? What kind of model? It's a business model. It's a corporate model. It's a capitalistic model. Basically, um, when there's inflation and um, we have to tighten our belts, we don't get rid of our family members, right? 
we, um, we eat less, we buy less clothes, we buy shoes less frequently. I don't know, I didn't live through the Depression. Perhaps some of you did, and you can tell us about that. Um, but I hear it all the time, and I used to hear it from my grandparents and, and my parents' uh, friends and what have you. Um, but what, what we do know is that a family model doesn't do that. Family model, you don't get rid of your family members. Uh, we're family, we stay together, we do whatever we have to do uh, to get through this rough patch. I've heard people say, you know, there was a time in my family when we, we ate rice and beans. Of course, uh, for other cultures, that's what they eat anyway, you know, every day. And it's not because they're poor, it's just because they like rice and beans. Yeah, I happen to like rice and beans. You know, I, I spent a number of years in Latin America. My parents were missionaries in several countries in Central America, and uh, where people ate rice and beans in the morning, in the noon, and in the evening. Beans in the morning, beans in the evening, beans at noon, beans in the summer, beans in the winter, beans in June. Beans, 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 the blessed beans. Frijoles, yes. So, anyway, so this is not a good model for family. This is a capitalistic model. And um, we don't get rid of family members. What we do is we prioritize what we're going to do. And there's certain things we do without, but we don't do without our children. We don't do without our spouses. We put them first because that's what God wants us to do. So, I want to make sure, um, Eric, that we get this clip. And let's see if, um, can you put the cursor in the middle and just click on it? There you go. Watch this. We're talking about prioritizing. things first. We're talking about prioritizing. We're talking about what do we do first? What's most important in our lives? Um, most families that fall apart do so because there's not a priority put on the relationship that needs to be there for it to be nurtured, for it to grow. Because relationships are just like plants. They're living organisms. And for them to thrive, 
we have to nurture it, we have to weed, we have to fertilize. Someone once said that conflict is the manure of marriage. It doesn't smell good, but without it, there's no real growth. It's a process there. So before I come back to the Big Rocks clip, I'll say a couple of things about that. The story that comes to mind was uh, when we had just moved to, to Washington, D.C. a number of years ago, and uh, I was called to a North American division and as, as director of family ministries. Um, so I've been in the building for a very long time because I was NAD Family Ministries Director for 15 years and now I've been the General Conference Director for eight years. So that's a long time. Now, if it just happened, then uh, I'd have been in a different building since NAD has its own building now. But at that time, you know, we had the same building. And um, we had just moved from South Lancaster, Massachusetts. We were coming from the Atlantic Union. And we were moving to Washington, D.C., which is a much more expensive um, area than Massachusetts. And I remember that um, we had uh, sold one of our cars when we moved so that we had enough money to, um, to put down as a down payment uh, on our house. And um, we couldn't justify having two cars at that point. Um, the kids were little. Um, they were just starting school, and Elaine had taken some time. She had taken some time off to be at home, and, and she was coming to pick me up one day. So she came to the general conference to pick me up after picking up the kids, and she said to me, "I'm famished. Can you get me something to eat?" There's a cafeteria at the general conference. There still is. Uh, food is pretty good. Good uh, vegetarian food. Um, I was going to say vegan, but it's not quite vegan. This <laughs> is vegetarian. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to the day when, when it'll be more vegan. And, uh, but it's quite good. And she says, get me a tray of food. So I did. And I looked, and there were a number of things that were on, um, on the menu. And uh, we often went to Italian restaurants. We like Italian food. So there's eggplant parmesan. I got her some eggplant parmesan, some salad, some stuff. And I got two trays because she was coming, and she was picking me up. I think it was Friday. You know, we were going home. So she says to me when I got to the car, she says, um, you drive, I'm, I'm, I'm famished, can I, can I have the tray? And I gave her her tray, and she opened it, and she said, eggplant parmesan, I hate eggplant parmesan. <laughs> so I said, oh, I, I had no idea. She says, have you ever seen me eat eggplant parmesan? And, and, and I said, you know, we go to Italian restaurants all the time, you know what I mean? I, I, I've eaten it, and I, th I thought you, you did too. She says, I've never eaten eggplant parmesan. I hate eggplant parmesan. So I, I gave her my tray, and it didn't have eggplant parmesan for whatever reason. I'm not sure why, because I love, egg, love eggplant parmesan. So she says, oh, okay. So she ate my tray. And um, the moral of the story is that I've never offered her eggplant parmesan since then. <laughs> Now, it's been a number of years now, and um, we've gone to Italian restaurants. Um, any of you been to Maggiano's? Oh, it's an amazing place. Yeah, amazing eggplant parmesan. Anybody has been to Buca di Beppo? Okay, good eggplant parmesan. And she has ventured to say, can I have a little bit of that? I said, oh, no, no, no. 
no, no, you want some, you're going to have to come and get it, you know. I don't give you any eggplant parmesan. So since that time, I've never offered my wife eggplant parmesan. Conflict, right? It's the middle of marriage. It doesn't smell good, but without it, there's no real growth. From that, what happened? I grew, I knew, I got to find out. My wife didn't like eggplant parmesan. You need to grow. That's what life is about. Pay attention. You know, so... No, I, I don't offer her eggplant parmesan. She wants it, she has to come get it. And, and every once in a while, she's like, can I have a little piece of that? Hey, go for it, man. I'm not offering it to you. You come at your own risk, you know. But that's what it means. That as we grow together, as we stay together, uh, we pay attention. And, um, you know, if you keep doing the same thing, expecting a different result, you know what it is. It's insanity. So um, uh, it's amazing to me, sometimes couples, as they're negotiating relationships with each other, they would keep doing the same thing over and over and then getting into conflict over and over. And like, pay attention, pay attention. Here's what we say to couples. And uh, those of you who are not couples, because you're not married yet, I see some children, so pay attention. Um, you want to have a great marriage when we get married? Uh, I, I just saw a little girl making up her face like, marriage. Anyway, you want to have a great marriage? Find out what your spouse likes and do it. If it's not immoral and it's not illegal, find out what your spouse likes and, and do it. And, and do it again. And do it again. And do it again. And again. And keep doing it. If they like it, they're always going to enjoy it when you do it. Keep doing it. There's another side to it. Equally important, find out what your spouse doesn't like and quit doing it. You know, I've been to couples who keep getting into the same issues over and over and over again. I mean, what gives? You knucklehead? I mean, she says she didn't like it. Or he didn't like it. Oh, I'm going to make this... What do we call it? This veggie loaf. Special K. I'm going to keep making the special K until he loves it. He said he didn't like it. Try something else, you know. Chocolates or something else, you know. Keep giving him special K. If he doesn't like special K, nobody has to like special K. It's what we do for each other in relationships. We pay attention. We pay attention. In fact, um... This is not a, a part of this presentation, but because I, I see you and I like you, I want to share it with you. And some of you are very familiar with it, and perhaps for some of you it's new. And if you know it already, it'll be a rehearsal. Um, every relationship, every relationship, certainly family relationships, certainly marriage, certainly relationship with your children, grandchildren, but every relationship has an emotional bank account. And a bank account works just like a regular bank account. Any of you have bank accounts? Bank accounts? And I'm, I'm not, I don't have a Nigerian scheme to offer you. <laughs> so don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. How does a bank account work? You put money. You got money. You put some more. You got more money. You make a withdrawal. You got less money. You take out some more. You got less. If you take out more than you have, you bankrupt. You write a check and it bounces because there's no currency. Same thing happens in our relationships. Um, you say you're coming home for dinner at a certain time and you show up. That's an emotional deposit. 
you say, ah, what an amazing meal. That's a deposit. And, and, and she feels good, and the relationship has currency. You come tomorrow and you say, oh, what's in here? I hate this, but I don't like this day. It's a withdrawal. That's a withdrawal. You know, you, you come and you say something else that you don't like, that's another withdrawal. If you make more withdrawals than deposits, what happens? You're bankrupt. Your relationship is bankrupt. It has no currency. So the more deposits you make and the more currency your relationship has, the more priority you put in your relationship. And that says that you are making it a priority by paying attention and making emotional deposits. The more currency your relationship is going to have. This is also true with your children, with your teenage children especially. As a father who's had teenage children, thank God we got through that. You know, um, wow. I wish I could go back and have some do-overs. You know, I wish I could go back and have some do-overs. If you have teenage children right now, be patient. Think before you speak. Make sure you're making a deposit instead of a withdrawal. Even if they're not doing everything you're requiring of them, find something good to make an emotional deposit and say, great, wonderful, I love when you do that. The more we do that, the more currency we have in our relationships. That's when we make our relationships priority. That's when we put first things first. Every couple that's gotten divorced, every couple that's gotten divorced, has gotten divorced because there were more withdrawals than deposits. And then something happened, and it was a big withdrawal, and it was already in deficit. And the relationship was bankrupt and couldn't stand the test of time because of that. So let's not allow it to get there. And, by the way, we have an emotional bank account with everybody. This week, if you keep coming, you're going to start having one with me. You know? And you see the, the, the doctor back there, he's making all these deposits because he's just responding to what I'm saying, and I don't like him already. <laughs> Th that's how it works. That's how it works. You know? He shows himself, and he, he makes himself noticeable, and he's pouring into my life by, by his responses. And that's the same thing that happens with our children, with our grandchildren, with our spouse. You know, and I always careful to say spouse. You know, sometimes we're in Africa and, and, and we say, we our spouses go to talk in plural. All the people I say, no, 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 spouse. Because, you know, there's a polygamy issue that we're dealing with in, in, in Africa. Yeah. 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 So, and, and the polygamy issue that we're dealing with in Africa is, is like getting married here in the United States uh, and we have no biblical grounds and getting into second and third marriages and same thing, you know. We, we tend to see the beam in the other person's eye and, or, or the speck, and we don't see the beam in our own eyes, so we have to be careful. Anyway, so these are things that you need to be mindful of. Going back to the clip, first things first, big rocks. Big rocks. What do we say were our priorities? Number one, God. So are we spending time with God? See? Are we spending time with God? 
if we say God, relationship with God is a priority, then we have to develop that relationship every day. I don't know how many of you are aware of the fact that in the Adventist Church, uh, coming from the General Conference, uh, we have an initiative called Revival and Reformation. How many of you have heard of it? Okay, some of you have. Okay. Those of you who have not, just go to Adventist.com and put in Revival Reformation and sign up for it. Let me tell you what happens if you sign up for Revival Reformation. Every day, you get a devotional, a little devotional reading, and then the church, the real church, is reading the Bible through to the general conference session, right? So you get a chapter of the day. You get a chapter of the day. So if you haven't made it a habit, a priority, I'm encouraging you to do so by signing up for it. You will get an email every day with a short devotional and the chapter of the day. And at the end of the chapter of the day, the spirit of prophecy chapter that we're reading for that day. We're talking about making time with God. If God is priority, relationship with him is priority, then we need to know what he's saying to us. Because only as we make God a priority and he pours into our lives, because that's what he's doing all the time, then we won't be able to have the fuel that it takes to make our families, our relationships a priority. Ellen White says, if we would humble ourselves, right? You know that quotation? If we would be, remind me of it, kind and tenderhearted, pitiful, there would be a hundred conversions to the truth where now there is but one. What is she saying? She's saying, put first things first. She's saying, Make emotional deposits. She's saying, value people. Remember, we're talking about principles and values. What are values? Things that are priority to us. And then number three, work. So, God, family, work. In that order. And sometimes people misunderstand. They think, oh, if I put my family before work, it means that I'm a slacker. No, that's not what it means. That's not what it means. It means that you know when you need to make the choice of what needs to be done, what's most important, what is before you. I want you to know, you just heard about my trajectory in ministry. 15 years at NAD and 8 years, the last 8 years at the GC. So that's what, 23 years? You know, my kids... I'm just getting to 30 and not quite there yet. And I want to say to you that up until the time my children were 18 and left for academy, the times I've been away from home for two weeks were less than five in the 18 years of their lives, in all those years of ministry, less than five. In fact, maybe three. Where I'd gone to Australia for camp meeting once and I'd gone to Costa Rica once. My priority was making sure that I was at home as much as I possibly could be at home. And and I that was my legacy for my dad, for my parents. Um, I remember when we were in Central America and my dad was 
quiet evangelist, and he got invited a lot to do evangelistic meetings. I remember that um, he was going someplace in the Bay Islands in Honduras, and uh, he was gone for a week, and it was only supposed to be a week, and people wanted him to stay some more, because you know, they really liked it, and they felt that people were coming and interested, and, and, and the people were joining the church. And they said, could you stay another week? And I still remember my dad said, um, I could, only if you send for my family. You know, and we were not even in school yet. I wasn't even in grade school yet. And I remember going to the Bay Islands of Honduras because my dad said the only way he would stay another week is if his, his family came to be with him. But in first things first, that's why I am here. I have peers. Pastor's kids, I have peers who have left the church a long time ago. Have nothing to do with the church. Hate the church. Because they see the church as a as a barrier for relationships. And that should never be said of us as Seventh-day Adventist Christians. We, ne- we need to be able to put first things first. God first, family second, and the rest comes after that. We need to make emotional deposits every day. So let's finish this way. So how do we put first things first? Your big rocks are your values, the things that are most important to you. And, and usually, Elaine does a much better job on, on this piece than I do. So I, I feel like you're being robbed because she's not here. Come back tomorrow. You, you know, she, and, and she has so much nicer speaking voice. Your big rocks are your values. And here's what happens. We said God, family, and um, work. And, and, and usually what happens when, when this doesn't happen is because our little rocks are the things that get in the way of being true to your values, your big rock barriers. So that would be little rocks. And you saw, you saw the clip. You saw the clip where he had all these little pebbles in there. And, and, and he was supposed to put all this stuff in there. And he couldn't put the stuff in there. Of course, this was a corporate um, clip. But we can change those values to God, family, work, and putting first things first. And, and the reason we don't put first things first is because we have little rocks that get in the way. What would little rocks be today? Help me. What would little rocks be today that take up our time? The rain. The rain. The rain. Okay. Ah. Cell phone. Cell phone. Email. 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 Facebook. 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 Little rocks. What else? A new ministry at the church. A, a new ministry at the church. Okay. Could be a little rock. Hobbies. hobbies. And, and not that hobbies are bad. But it could be a little rock if you spend all your time so that you have not enough time for your spouse. Not enough time. Television. You know, there's so many little rocks that we can think of. And if we're saying, we're prioritizing, putting first things first, if we're saying we're living our lives based on principles, if we're saying we're living our lives based on our values, our highest values, hmm, then we need to put first things first. That's what it's saying. Imagine how many books you could have written. Imagine how many things you could have done. Imagine how much better your relationship with your children could have been if you invested and put that first instead of the other stuff that wasn't so important, the other stuff that is not permanent, the other stuff that 
really has little value. Things that value most should never come second to things that value least. You have to put the first things first. So, how do you put marriage and family first? Well, spend one-on-one bonding time. Spend time with, with your spouse. I mean, just your spouse, even if you have children. Because uh, the children, by the way, they're going to leave. They're, they're just visitors in your home right now. It's okay, you have to take care of them, but they're going to leave. So, um, you know when you're on the plane, airplane, and I just came on one yesterday from Baltimore, and they go through the charades of telling you what to do, and, you know, if you lose oxygen, you know, this mask is going to fall. They say, put on yours first before you help someone else. I think if the parents have their masks on first, then it's going to be okay. They can help the rest. Um, also, there's something I want to say about that, and that is, don't, remember, don't forget that the only person you are one with is your spouse. Not your father, not your mother, not your children, your spouse. That's the only person that you're one with. So, one-on-one bonding time is important. I remember the first time we left Jessica. She, uh, up until that time, she'd gone everywhere with us. I think she was about three years old, uh, a little older, four. And uh, I believe Julian was one. And Elaine's family lived in New England and South Lancaster, Massachusetts area, for those of you who went to AUC. And uh, Elaine and I were going to celebrate our anniversary going out to the Cape, and we dropped off the kids with Elaine's family. And when we got, got back, uh, we were showing some pictures to the kids, and, he, and Jessica saw the pictures, and she said, you went to the beach? You stayed in the hotel? You went to a restaurant without me? You'll never do that again. That's what she said at age four. <laughs> but we did. <laughs> we did. One-on-one bonding time. Um, but we were in, in Budapest about three weeks ago. I'm losing track of time. About three weeks ago. The only reason we were there was because last year we were asked to be in Budapest this year. This, um, our director, our union director for the Hungarian Union said, can you come next year? Aren't you going to be in Central Europe sometime next year? We said, we're going to be in Serbia. Can you come right after Serbia? I looked at the calendar. I said, mm, no, can't come. He says, how come? You're, you're right next door. I said, because it's our son's birthday. And he's not married yet. And until our kids get married, we're home for their birthdays. I mean, he, was 20, he was turning 28. It's not like he was turning 18 or 16. 28. He's our son, our only son. He's not married yet. He needs to know that his birthday is important to his parents. So he'll say no to Budapest. I said, the only way we can come if Julian decides he wants to come to Budapest with us. And he did. And he came to Budapest. And that last Sabbath we were there in Budapest was his birthday, April 28th. He turned 28. And we had a great meal at a wonderful restaurant he chose. And you know what he said to us during the meal? He said, thanks for staying. Thanks for staying. That's what he said. He was talking about his mother and I. Thanks for staying. 
Sometimes couples say, well, and I know many of them, um, they're not getting along. And by the way, we are all about, we refuse to be in a bad marriage. Listen to me carefully. We, Elaine, if, I wish you were here. She says it a lot better than I do. She says, I refuse to be in a bad marriage. Because I refuse to be, I, well, we're not getting divorced. So those are not the only two alternatives. The, there's a third alternative. Make it better. <laughs> do something. Make it better. Right? Make it better. So, you know, failure is not final. You fall down, you get up. That's what we do in family. That's what we do with priorities. That's what we do with things that matter most. First things first. I need to win. Let's spend one-on-one bonding time with your children as well. We have two kids, and I made sure that I spent individual time with my kids and plan on weekly time together. You know, we still have a, a weekly date, Elaine and I, where we're not talking about finances, we're not talking about trouble, we're not talking about anything else but just us. How you doing? And um, John Gottman, one of the leading marriage researchers in the world, many of you may be familiar with him. He works with his wife, Julie. They're both uh, marriage researchers. Um, he says you should turn towards each other. One of the biggest issues in, in marriage and why marriages are falling apart is that people turn away from each other when they're having difficulty. He says turn towards each other. Lean in. Listen. He also does something he calls love maps. What is that? Well, what's a map? What's a map? What do you need a map for? To find your way. Do you know how to find your way in a relationship with your spouse? Do, do you know what her favorite color is? Do you, do you know what her favorite meal is? Do you know do you know who her best friend is? Do you know who she doesn't like too much? You know who's our friend's least favorite relative? When I said flower, you know, I, I was thinking about the guy who the speaker was saying, Do you know what your wife's favorite flower is? And, and the guy said, Yeah, I know, I know. And he said, Yes, yes. It's it's Pillsbury all purpose, isn't it? <laughs> and he started his life of celibacy. <laughs> anyway, let's end, let's end. <laughs> so here's my challenge to you. We say we are the people of God. We say we're the people of the book. We say we live by principles and values. Here's a big value. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And I say what it says, or whatever you do, marriage, family, do all to the glory of God. If you're married, do that to the glory of God. If you have children, parent to the glory of God. How am I giving honor and glory to God? By my relationship. If all people knew about God was watching you as a neighbor... Would it want me to be a part of the people of God? So do marriage to the glory of God. Parent to the glory of God. Put first things first. Things that matter most should never be at the expense of things that matter least. Ah, this is for the pastors in the room, but for anyone who's in ministry. This is Ellen White, Gospel Workers, 204. Nothing, read it with me, nothing can excuse the minister for neglecting the inner circle for the larger circle outside. Spiritual welfare of his family comes first.
pastors, church workers. Nothing should come first. One of the reasons I'm here, I still remember as a six, seven-year-old listening to my father preach and saying, when I get to, and he was a good preacher, when I get to heaven, he says, I want to see all of you there. But more important than that, I want to see and look towards my mother and call her by name and look at my brother and call him by name and look at me and call me by name. That's why I'm here. I knew he, I was important to him. He wanted to see me in the kingdom. Every once in a while when we were having dinner with our children, I said to them, you know, we want to see you in heaven. I want to see you in heaven. And our children don't always do what we want them to do. They're adults. They have to make their own way. But as long as there's life, we keep praying. And I keep holding God to his promise. He says, I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I'm holding on to that promise. I'm holding on to that promise. And God is faithful. So this stuff is not easy. But he has a promise of success. Say it with me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Marriage is difficult. Family is difficult. But, paraphrasing M. Scott Peck at the beginning of his book, The Road Less Traveled, and many of you have read it, life is difficult. Hmm? Do you remember that? Life is difficult. But, he goes on to say, doesn't matter, right? We know that life is difficult. I say marriage is difficult, family is difficult. But the fact that it's difficult no longer matters. That's what he says. And I say, as long as we trust in Jesus, because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. I pray for you today, and I want you to pray for me as well. As we leave this place, we will leave once again committed to putting first things first. Relationship with God, relationship with our spouse, with our children, with our family, and work. But that work needs to be a work that represents Jesus. It needs to be a work that draws people to Jesus. It needs to be a work that points men and women, boys and girls, to the Christ who is about to come. Because he who will come, will come, and will not tarry. And I say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for the time that we've spent together. And we pray that as we grapple with some of these issues and think about our own relationships, that we might remember that love is patient and kind. Help us to do so, and by doing so, make emotional deposits each day in the lives of our loved one's emotional bank account. And when you return... May we be ready to meet you with the little flock that you've given us. And that many more will be ready. Because as scripture says in John 13, 15, by this they will know that you are my disciples because of your love one for the other. May we love this way and help hasten the coming of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>